Good morning, church. Is everyone warm enough out there? It's been pretty cold. This Sunday is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and I've chosen to stand in solidarity with churches across our nation to raise awareness of the need to protect the most vulnerable and voiceless people in our society, the unborn. Churches across the nation set aside this Sunday because it's the closest uh, Sunday to the anniversary of that horrific Roe v. Wade Supreme Court decision on January 22nd, 1973, almost 49 years ago. I won't go into all these details this morning in the sermon, but there is a bulletin insert from CareNet. You can check that out, CareNet. They put together that video we just saw. Uh, It's a ministry that we support. They have a pregnancy center up in Poughkeepsie. But they have some uh, action points here, things that you can do to to get involved and to familiarize yourself with their ministry. Uh, And it's not just about uh, preventing abortion, but it's it's about uh, healing and reaching out to people and ministering to people who have and helping them to work through uh, that pain. And uh, so it's a, it's a holistic ministry. It's a, it's a gospel-centered ministry. There's also information on one side of this uh, about a Supreme Court case that the, the court has already heard. The arguments have been made, and they are now deliberating. And this is a, a case that could very well overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, and we pray for that. And there's ways on here uh, that you can pray. And, of course, uh, Someone I heard them say this or put it this way once. You know, it's not our 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 hope just that abortion would be made illegal, but that it would be unthinkable. And that's that's a work that uh, needs to happen in the hearts and minds of people, not just uh, in courts and in uh, in Congress. Let me be very clear about something before I go any further. <clears throat> This is not a political sermon, okay? This is not a political sermon. This is a biblical issue. And let me be clear about this. Every political party will fail you. Every political party will fail you as a follower of Christ. And so they can never be where our hope is rests. Our hope is not in a political party. Our hope is in King Jesus. Okay? So this is not a political sermon, and I'm not here advocating for any party. We are the kingdom of God, and Christ Jesus is our king. This morning I may say some things that are unsettling to you, but before you tune me out, please know that I'm going to be very careful and sensitive to stand on the truths of God's word, which is our highest authority, and know that it is God's approval that matters more than man's approval of me. Okay? With that said, I hope to show you this morning from God's word that abortion is murder. There's no soft way to say that. Abortion is murder, and I need to say that with boldness, because it's what the Word of God 
teaches. Statistics tell us that one in four women have had an abortion, so I'm not naive. In in a group this large, uh, there are perhaps some have had an abortion. I know this issue hits close to home for you. Whether you've personally had one, whether you've encouraged someone to have one, or pressured even someone to have one, or paid for one even, or you've just been apathetic about this issue, I know this issue hits close to home. And so I want to show you from God's Word uh, what it teaches about the value of all human life, but I also want to point you to the grace of God this morning. Because this sin in particular is not an unforgivable sin. It's something for which the grace of God has covered because of Jesus Christ. And so I want to give you that hope this morning. Now go ahead, grab your Bibles, turn with me now to Psalm 139. We're going to look at verses 13 through 16. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 618. And if you're able, I invite you to stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God. And follow along with me as I read, please. Reformed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in the secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, as yet there was none of them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for its clarity in a culture and in a world that is deceived and confused. We thank you for the anchor of clarity that your word is to us. Thank you that we can rely on it and stand on it. Father, it won't always be popular. In fact, it is much of the time unpopular to stand on the truths of your word in the face of uh, popular cultural opinion. So, Father, embolden us to, to care more for what you think of us and not for what others may think of us. And to be bold in the proclamation of your word and help us all to hear from you. Holy Spirit, be our teacher. May your word penetrate our hearts. If, there's, if there be walls around our hearts uh, in any areas uh, that your word speaks to, Father, we pray that it would dissolve, that it would crumble like sand. And that we would hear your word and rejoice, knowing that your word is good and perfect. God, we love you. We ask your blessing on this time together in your word. And may we be more like Jesus as a result. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. 
we're going to look at this passage and discover where our value comes from as human beings. But first, I I want to lay out how our world, in particular, the pro-abortion advocates, how they deny the value of the unborn to justify killing them. So, first we're going to talk about human value. This first point is human value. I put a question mark next to it because it's it's, it's the, the confused logic of our, of our culture. <clears throat> Fifty years ago, we did not know what we know today scientifically about the unborn. Many assumed that the unborn were simply a glob of, of unformed tissue that was part of the mother's body. But thanks to science, we know today that at the moment of conception, a fertilized egg has its own unique DNA. Different from the mother's and different from the father's, it's its own unique DNA. A child's heart starts to beat at just 21 days after conception. And after only eight weeks, if you're able to take a blood sample by pricking the heel of of the child, two things will happen. First, the child will actually recoil at the, the prick on the heel after only eight weeks. And this tells us that they can actually feel pain after only eight weeks. The second thing that will happen is that blood sample will show that the baby has her own blood. It's not her mother's blood and it's not her father's blood. It's the baby's own blood. At eight weeks, the child will also respond to sound All of the organs are present. The brain is active. And there's even new research to suggest that they may even be dreaming. So this is not just a glob of tissue that is a part of the mother's body. This is a different body altogether. And because of this and other advancements in science, pro-abortion advocates have consented to the fact that the unborn are human beings. They agree. They are human beings. But they've since invented this language called personhood language. Personhood language affirms that the unborn are, in fact, human beings, but denies that they are actually yet persons with any value, with any dignity, and this should be shocking to us because by making this claim, they, they explicitly argue that there are human beings that can be killed without penalty because they're not persons. Now, this next part I learned from the apologetics ministry, Stand to Reason, I wanted to share it with you. As rational people, we should ask this question when someone claims that a human being is not a person because they're in the womb. We should ask this question, ready? What's the difference between a human being and a person? What's the difference? Just ask that question and see what they say. Now, when asked this question, abortion advocates will typically cite characteristics that are arbitrary Characteristics of the unborn that fall into four categories. An easy way to remember these categories is to use the acronym SLED. I have a slide for it. 
for you so you can write this down if you find this to be helpful. So SLED uh, covers four categories, four characteristics um, that they will try to argue uh, denies a human being personhood and value. The first is size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency, SLED. First, it is argued that a human being is not a person because of their size. It's true. Unborn babies are very small. Very small. But is their size a good reason for killing them? For denying them personhood? A two-year-old is smaller than a 22-year-old. Does this mean that a two-year-old is less valuable than a 22-year-old? Or even such that we could justify killing it? No. The size doesn't matter. The value of a human being is not determined by our size. The next argument is that an unborn human being is less developed than a human being that is born. But how does that disqualify someone from personhood? A two-year-old, again, is less developed physically, cognitively, than a teenager. But again, does this make them any less valuable? Or what about adult human beings with physical or mental disabilities because they're less developed than other adults? Are they less of a person? Are they less valuable? Of course not. So neither should an unborn human being be considered less valuable than a born human being. It does not make sense. The next argument is environment. Because the unborn are in a mother's womb, they're denied personhood. And this is, this is really silly. I mean, we don't do this anywhere else in our world. Is an astronaut less valuable than a scuba diver because of their environment, their location, where they happen to be? No, of course not. So how does a seven-inch journey down a birth canal suddenly transform a valueless human being into a valuable person? It doesn't. It doesn't. The last argument given by abortion advocates is that the unborn are too dependent on the mother. Too dependent for things like nutrition to develop because... An unborn human is completely dependent on the mother for life, whether they're nursing or providing baby formula, changing them, giving them clothes. They need all these things to survive. But newborns are just as dependent. They're just as dependent on their mother to survive. They can't feed or clothe themselves. If, if denied these necessities, they'll die. So why is it okay to kill a baby because they're too needy? when they're in the womb? Are they not persons with dignity and value? Of course they are. Of course they are. So to summarize this, abortion advocates deny that human beings are valuable and worthy of protection. The ones who don't make the cut are the ones who are too small, not developed enough, they're in the wrong location, 
and they're too dependent on other people. These characteristics allow the strong to disqualify the weak and the vulnerable and the defenseless. And this is no different than denying others value and dignity based on things like the color of their skin or their ethnicity. We've seen this happen in history with things like slavery and the Holocaust. Now, we haven't looked to the Word of God yet for wisdom and guidance in this area. And it is rich. Before we get there, I want you to consider one last piece of common sense here. If you were not a Christian who believed in the value of all human life, you still know instinctively that human beings have value and worth, and it's wrong to kill them. Now, if you're convinced that that a human being or a person, if you want to use that language, has value, then why are they valuable? And how do you know when that person is valuable when they're in the womb? At what point do they become valuable or not? We don't really know. I mean, we do know from the Word of God. We'll get there, right? But if you weren't a Christian, how do you know and you believe that humans are valuable and worthy of protecting. So if you don't know, then why risk being wrong and guilty of murder? Imagine with me, if you're driving down the road and you come upon uh, uh, a coat kind of bundled up in the road, and you think to yourself, it's bundled up in such a way where maybe there's a person in there, but maybe not. It could just be a bundled up coat. Do you throw caution into the wind and just hit the pedal and run it over? If there's even a chance that there could be a person in there, no, you don't do that. You slow down, you pull to the side, you check to see if someone might need help. And so if we're not sure at what point a person has value, even in the womb, Why throw caution into the wind and destroy that life and risk being wrong? Abortion advocates cannot say with any science that they have absolute certainty that the unborn are human beings and are valuable persons in their language or not. So why be so cavalier and risk doing violence to the weakest and the most vulnerable and the voiceless. But we know that the unborn have value all the way to the point of conception because of the word of God. Our highest authority in the world has made this plain for us. Aren't we thankful for God's word? Look back with me now at Psalm 139. This point is human value with an exclamation point. It's so clear. We have value because God's word tells us that we are created. We are created. Verse 13, we are formed. We are knitted together in our mother's womb. Verse 14, we are fearfully and wonderfully made Verse 15, we are intricately woven. 
Now, I don't knit. I don't weave. I have daughters who knit. But I know these activities are done with, with purpose. They take time. And there's a, there's a lot of intentionality that goes into this. Human beings are not uh, microwave meals. You just stick in the microwave and they're done. Or you pick up at a drive through When you knit, you've got to pick out the colors. You've got to choose the right materials. You have to pick out a pattern. There's intentionality. And I hear this. No unborn baby is an accident or a mistake. They're fearfully and wonderfully made by our God. In Genesis 1, we learn about God creating the world and everything in it by speaking things into existence from nothing. It's really incredible, really incredible stuff. But when we get to chapter 2, we see, (coughs) excuse me, when we get to chapter 2, we see that God creates man in an entirely different manner from everything else that he has made. We read in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Notice that when God created the human race, he gets intimate. He gets personal. He gets his hands dirty, forming us from the dust of the ground. He breathes into the first man's nostrils the very breath of life. The inescapable fact here is that we're made, that we have value because of who made us. Who made us gives us value. Now, if I made a painting, no matter how good it was, I'll just tell you, it probably won't be very good. It wouldn't be worth very much to anybody. You know, if I tried to sell that on eBay or Etsy, or I don't know what people do these days, but... uh, Facebook Marketplace, I don't know. Uh, I I wouldn't expect a lot for it. We'll just say that. But if Pablo Picasso were here today and he sketched a stick figure on a McDonald's napkin, it would probably sell for millions. His art would have value because he made it. He made it. How much more valuable then are we who are the wonderful works of the divine? The answer is extremely valuable. Extremely valuable. And we're not just any works of God, like rocks or trees. In fact, he's created all of creation. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians 2.10 says that we are his workmanship. This word workmanship is a Greek word, pima, and it carries with it a meaning of something being a masterpiece. In fact, that's how the New Living Translation translates that word pima, as masterpiece. So we have value because of who made us, but we're not just a a sketch on a McDonald's napkin. We're his masterpiece. We are the crown of everything that he's created. 
We are his masterpieces. And so to kill an unborn baby is worse than vandalizing the Mona Lisa. It's destroying a masterpiece of the divine. To kill an unborn baby then does violence to the active work of God in the womb. His knitting, his weaving, his forming. It it does violence to that active work of God. And still we hear the loud cry of abortion advocates, my body, my choice. My body, my choice. And this is very telling of the spirit of our age that champions radical personal autonomy. That if you want to know what our world worships, that's what our world worships today. Radical personal autonomy. You do you is the mantra of our culture. The chief sin of our culture is to judge another person by even suggesting that they may be doing something wrong. Now, before we go getting up on our moral high horses, we all do this in different ways because of our own sin. Sin makes us all rebels against our Creator. And we hate the notion that we're made and that we're accountable, that there's someone who made us, who owns us. We, we reject that because of our sin with great vehemence. And this is, this is the sinful condition of the human heart that the, the Apostle Paul describes in Romans 1, starting in verse 22. He says, claiming to be wise, they became fools, exchanging the glory of God Glory the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We've exchanged the glory of God for the worship of self. Today, many pastors are, are preaching in solidarity with churches in Canada. A new law went into effect on January 8th in Canada. And while it's not the topic of this sermon, it's related to this point. I, I wanted to mention this because I want you to know that I stand in solidarity with my Christian brothers and sisters in Canada. This new law criminalizes the practice of what's called conversion therapy. And this includes any practice that seeks to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity from what the Bible teaches is in alignment with God's created purpose for mankind. And anyone who attempts to help a person change in these ways, even if it's consented to, will be guilty of a criminal offense that carries a maximum sentence of up to five years. Even promoting this practice could land you in jail for up to two years. This is a direct attack on the gospel. It's a direct attack on the gospel because it prevents us from calling what the Bible calls sin. And if we can't call sin, sin, then how can we offer people the grace of God in Jesus Christ? It's a direct attack on the gospel. We must be able to call what the Bible calls sin, sin. 
so they can know the grace of God that sets sinners free. So please keep our Canadian brothers and sisters in prayer uh, that they would have wisdom and that they would have courage to continue to faithfully proclaim the gospel. And with that, we'll transition to our last point, grace. I want to end with grace. Some of you may be walking in a great deal of shame over this issue of abortion, whether you've had one or encouraged someone to have one, pressured someone to have one, paid for one, or if you've just been apathetic to the issue. If you're feeling shame and you're beginning to feel like maybe you're not welcome here, if this is you, I want to cut you off of the pass right now and tell you what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. God does not look at murder, even the murder of a baby, as some sort of unforgivable or disqualifying sin. We need to remember someone like Moses who killed a man. King David slept with another man's wife and then had that man killed. The Apostle Paul approved of the killing of the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And yet, the grace of God abounded for these men and the grace of God abounds for us too. The grace of God covers all your sin. And so if you're feeling shame today, you need to lean into the truth of God this morning, the grace of God that abounds. Where sin increases, grace abounds. If you're not a math major, that means more, right? Sin increases, grace is always more. You cannot out-sin God. When the Holy Spirit brings conviction, it has a bittersweet edge to it. Because you're confronted with your guilt, but it also points you to Jesus Christ, who's paid the bill in full for your sin when he died on the cross in your place. You can't out-sin the cross of Christ. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Amen? At your point of guilt and shame, God says in all his mercy and grace, is that all you got? Is that all you got? Because I got more. I've got more grace. However much sin you bring to the table, I've got more grace. Is that all you got? Come to me and be forgiven. Come to me and be healed. Come to me and be welcomed is the grace of God. For sinners. Isaiah 118, I'm going to end with this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Amen.